My father was a careful man, meticulous even. He lived a life that was well measured, and if some considered him bland or dull, he didn't seem to mind. He was moderately successful in his business. He was moderately well thought of by the community we lived in. When my mother went missing, he was, to anyone that might observe him or inquire, moderately worried and sad. He was the same with me. Reasonable, patient, and generally kind in the focused way you might expect from a pleasant doctor or a taxi driver. A detached civility and courtesy that had more to do with how my father was than how he felt about me. It's not that I complained. Even when I was younger, I had enough sense to know so many kids had it worse. My mom wasn't around, but they got along well enough, though. He seemed to feed her the same brand of love as me. A bland, almost flavorless thing with artificial aftertaste. I was twelve when she went missing. And as much as I missed her, I was somewhat preoccupied by what would come next. Because I'd known for some months that occasionally, just every few weeks or so, my father would go out into the woods. It never occurred to me to follow him, or to even question internally why I didn't consider doing so. My fear of my father was like a background radiation, invisible but ever-present since I was old enough to understand that something was wrong, eating and mutating me slowly enough that I never stopped to wonder if everyone lived so tight with tension and foreboding, perpetually waiting for the other shoe to drop. When I saw him going into the woods one winter afternoon, I wondered if the time had finally come. He never went to those woods. He wasn't the outdoorsy type, and he was quick to point out as he pulled his lips away from dry, polished teeth and nod in that precisely affable manner that he did. A mannequin making the motions of a real man. He was just home from work, but an hour earlier than usual, which was odd in and of itself. When he parked and turned toward the tree instead of the house, I couldn't help but watch from my upstairs window, heart beating a little faster as a voice whispered to me that this was it. This was it. He was starting to unravel, and now we were going to see the thing that lay behind those placid smiles and cool pats on the back. The thing that made Mom flinch when she heard the door open at night and made me stay in my room when I was home alone with him. I was terrified, but also relieved because at least it would be over. Except it wasn't. He went deeper into the woods until I couldn't see him, and after an hour I gave up watching. When he came inside later that night, we didn't comment on his lateness, and neither did he. I went to bed half expecting to wake up to screaming or not at all. But no. Everything was fine. It was the same, except that occasionally, just every few weeks or so, my father would go back out into the dark that lay between the trees. That continued until my mother vanished, and after a period of disruption where people searched and questions were asked, 
our lives went back to a form of normal. The dread I felt was constant now. But I was also an old and familiar friend by that point. I escaped to school or friends' houses when I could, and TV and books when I couldn't. For his part, my father left me alone past the threshold of attention and affection he felt he needed to show. His trips into the woods continued as long as I lived there. As soon as I graduated high school, I moved out across the state to college. I went home that first Thanksgiving and Christmas, but after that, I never went back. He didn't mind. He'd call to check up on me once a month, always the first day of the month at 8 o'clock, and other than that, we never spoke or saw each other again. I went back home to see his funeral and put his affairs in order, but nearly everything had already been done for me. He died in the backyard of a sudden embolism, but you'd think he'd known the moment he was going to go. Every corner of his life had been tucked and folded, lines even and corners crisp, much like the envelope he'd left for me. It wasn't some heartfelt message of love or loss, and it wasn't a confession of some dark secret life. It was just a single line, written in my father's small, neat script. It begins with the dreams. I rented a hotel room for the two weeks I planned to be back in town. The house just wasn't an option. I couldn't stay in that place again. Just walking in felt like putting my foot into quicksand, and I could feel the hands of that past, me reaching up and grasping at me, hungry to pull me back down. So I slept in a hotel room that could have been like any other hotel room in any city in the world, somewhere far away. And for the first couple of nights, worked and then I started dreaming of the woods I toyed with the idea of going into the woods since I'd gotten the call of my father's death it'd been years since I'd gone deeper in than the edge of the yard I'd already spent most of my playtime away from home and after I saw my father go there it wasn't even a consideration that was his place now Whatever he did there, I didn't want to know about. Maybe I would have just chalked up my dreams of picking my way between those dark and tangled trees as residual trauma dredged up by stirring the muck of my childhood, but on the fourth day, the day after the first of the dreams, the estate lawyer gave me the envelope with my father's last words. When I pulled out of the parking lot, I headed away from town and back toward the house. I was a grown man, and I wasn't wasting another day being afraid of letting that strange man poison my life. My heart still hammered as I stepped into the woods, but I was determined. I could see the ghost of a trail ahead of me, and I followed it further and further past a small creek and across a field to a deeper part of the wood that was thicker and swampier. The mud sucked at my shoes as I went, and the air was more humid, but also deathly still. I'd have expected insects, but there were none. Bird sounds or furtive motions beneath a strange plant that grew here. But everything was silent. 
I had a thought that I'd stepped back in time, a frozen moment from some ancient swamp, oxygen-rich and teeming with unseen life. Life that was hungry and powerful, laying just beneath the black mud, watching me, perhaps, or suspended from the enormous bows of the gargantuan trees that twisted overhead. The nightmare king of some dead dinosaur's forgotten memory, but somehow alive and ready to be remembered. I blinked and looked around. Where was I? What was I thinking about? I... My eyes fixed on the muddy bank I was standing in front of. In the middle of it, as though it had been excavated like a fossil, was the thing I felt sure my dream and my father had sent me to find. It was a brass fortune teller machine. I glanced around again. I had to be miles away from the house. How was that even possible? The woods weren't that big. Less than a mile and I should have hit the highway. I tried to swallow, but my mouth was too dry. My body felt desiccated and hollow, just bone and dry skin and terrible will as I walked closer to the thing half buried in the hill. It was five feet tall, all polished wood and brass, though the metal was tarnished and the wood had began to bleach and speckle after time in the wet and the sun. The top three feet were a glass cube containing the torso of a puppet woman dressed in a headscarf and gold jewelry. Her painted green eyes regarded me from beneath arched, knowing eyebrows that told of knowledge and things unseen. Above the glass, the brass arced into an aberesque roof, framing a small sign of red and gold stained glass. I couldn't read it at first, but then it lit up as a soft violin began to trill from a speaker grill below the fortune teller. I was startled, but I didn't jump or step back. I was transfixed. Looking at the red lettering of the glass, I read the words glowing there. The voice of Aradot. I did let out a small scream when the fortune teller began to move, waving metal arms over a glowing crystal ball resting in front of her. The violin picked up speed, growing louder and more incessant, the insectile trilling of some long-dead song. My skin prickled as excitement began to grow in my belly, spreading up into my heart and head, down into my groin. A small tray popped out from the front of the machine, and from it, a milky white car jutted out. I didn't hesitate in reaching out and grasping it, pulling the card free from the silky strands that held it in place with some effort. On one side, there was a strange symbol that I didn't quite recognize, as though I'd seen it in a dream. On the other, there were only two words. Offer yourself. I let the card flutter to the mud as I saw a motion next to the machine. There was a hole beside it. Somehow I hadn't seen it before, but it was there now. Less than half the height of the fortune-telling kiosk, and thick with shadow and more strands, like had trailed from the card when I took it. 
There was no fear or confusion. I knew what had to be done. Of course I knew. I was doing something as old as rain or the sun rising. As sacred as being born. Or taking a life. I knelt down and crawled toward the hole, keeping my eyes lowered as I reached it and lay down, rolling over onto my back as I scooted myself forward, pushing my head into the moist darkness beyond. Once my shoulders touched the sides, I waited, holding my breath as I began to worry that I'd done something wrong. But no. A coolness came to rest against my cheek as an inner darkness within that gloom came to greet me. I began to cry as that coldness dug into my skin as a voice told me to keep my eyes closed, not to look. I couldn't see it, not even a shadowy glimpse where I'd be lost forever. I lay in the muck, head surrounded by shadows and webs as it's Icy weight settled over my face. When I left the woods, I saw a sheriff's patrol car parked behind me. I was going to try and ignore it, but Sheriff Haverland got out and met me at my car. We'd met briefly two days earlier when I'd run into him at the funeral home, and when he had seemed a jolly and affable man at the time. Now, I could see beneath that, and I knew why he was here. Everything going alright, Kenneth? Need anything for the service tomorrow? My offer to give you an escort from the church still stands. I nodded. I appreciate it. I don't think many people will be at the funeral, so traffic shouldn't be a problem. Raising an eyebrow, I asked him. Is that why you came? To offer help at the funeral again? He shrugged and gave a small smile. Partly, yeah. That and, well... I just thought I should warn you. I felt my jaw tightening. Warn me of what? The sheriff puffed out a breath as he looked down the road. Uh, your dad. Well, he's your daddy and he passed, and I don't make a habit of talking bad about the dead. But he met my eyes again. He was a strange man, and I'd be lying if I said me and the others around here didn't wonder if he was up to more than he let on. I frowned. Up to what, exactly? You talking about my mom? You never found any sign he did something to her, did you? Or that he'd done anything to abandon us? Shrugging again, he nodded. No, you're right. But it was still odd. No one that knew her expected her to leave like that. And we never saw any sign of how or where she would have run off to. It's natural to suspect foul play involving the husband in something like that, you understand. He pulled at his bottom lip thoughtfully. But it wasn't just that. These last 20 years, we've had people go missing. Always happens sometimes. People move, 
run away, get themselves killed, but since I was a deputy, we've had three times the number of people go missing here than in any of the surrounding areas. I know, because I checked. I stared at him. (laughs) Okay, so what are you saying? Do you think my father had something to do with any of that? Haverlin let out a short laugh. (laughs) No, I'm not saying that. Though I admit I did wonder a few times over the years. You always gave me an odd feeling, your dad. Nice enough fellow, but I can never tell what he was really thinking. His smile fell away. You look like him, you know. I didn't see you the other day, but I do now. I glanced past him to the swaying green of the woods. I appreciate the sentiment and the offer of help, but I really do have a lot to do today. Was there more that you needed to tell me? When I looked back at the man, his face was troubled. Just, if you find anything going through your dad's stuff, things that don't belong or don't make sense, something that might belong to some missing or, I don't know, Anything that feels wrong, he swallowed. If you find anything like that, let me know, yeah? I gave him a smile, not too friendly or happy, but not too cold or hard as I nodded. Sure thing, Sheriff. I'll be sure to do that. Seemingly satisfied, he stepped back from my car. Well, I'll let you get back to it. I know you want to get done and back to your life. (laughs) Living in Colorado, right? I paused and opening the car door to glance back at him. I did, yeah. I'm going to be staying here now. Haverland raised his eyebrows. Really? I got the idea the other day that you were hot to be done and on your way. What changed your mind? studied him for a moment. You know how it is. Past is a powerful thing. I guess I just realized where I am. A distant wind picked up behind the man, rustling the trees and pushing him hard enough to make him have to catch his hat. Fumbling with it awkwardly, he looked back at me. Where's that? I sucked in a deep breath. The air smelled rich and thick with a dozen different scents. I smiled slightly at the fear I smelled coming from him. Home. I was out on the street the day the first driverless truck came to town. The sun watched us through the overcast sky with an aloof white glare arcing dull glints across that smooth, still face. A bank of chrome and black sensors glimmered where the cabin should have been. It looked every bit like a metal snail pulling a shipping container. A few of the men around me clinked their beer cans. Several muttered epithets. Our town was small, but we had our claim to fame. 
We were a town of truck drivers, through and through. Everyone knew the best drivers came from our stock, and coming from around here meant the best pay and the best radio company while on the road. We were out in the middle of nowhere, but we made this junction our own. When the company decided to try out driverless trucks, our little town nearly went into a riot mode. It took quite some time to work out the compromise. The drivers would shift to maintenance and consultation if the driverless trucks tests were successful and we'd all keep our pay. It made sense. The company couldn't afford engineers and far out places like this one and we knew our trucks better than any college man. So we took the offer. Some saw it as lifetime pension. Sit on our asses, drink beer, take care of our trucks while they rolled into town? Sign me up. Some had enjoyed the work. The drive, they said, was time alone. Time on the road, they said, was time away from home. Away from the screaming kids and the old ball and chain. They joked, but I knew what they meant. Sitting around all day, wasn't sure what to do with myself. I got the internet. That's what I did. Started learning to read and write a little better. I'd seen pensions gutted and slashed in the news my whole life. And I didn't trust that our situation would last forever. Time to get educated and get out, I told myself. I just didn't know how little time I had. That one truck rolled through every couple of days like clockwork. The guys, they clamored for something to do, so the company deemed the first test a success and sent out more. We had one or two driverless trucks coming through each day, and it seemed like every arrival was a little town block party. Kids danced by gushing fire hydrants to beat the summer heat. Old men drank their old Milwaukee's and rickety nylon seats under the trees, and me and the boys hung around hitting on the kids' mothers. Suppose we should have seen it coming, but it was still a shock when the first dog got run over. A kid threw a ball into the street during the festivities, and that was that. His dog ran right up to it and got crushed under the wheel. Damn truck didn't even realize what it had done. We were all horrified. The whole town came out for that meeting at the town hall. The slick-suited business guy heard our concerns and promised the designers would look into it. Two weeks later, the trucks rolling through town looked a little different. Bigger, more cargo space. Every now and then they'd still ran over dogs, but we figured they'd tried, and we'd just have to keep a tighter leash on the pets. They said that without a driver, the trucks were more efficient, so they kept getting slightly bigger every few weeks. It wasn't long before half the pets in the area had been run over or permanently moved inside. There were no more parties when the trucks came in. Parents didn't want their kids playing near the damn things and get on them. But it didn't help. The Dyers' kid went out chasing a ball just like that damn dog. The draft on these bigger trucks was stronger and he got sucked right under. It crushed his leg, and not two days later we heard he'd never walk again. The 
Dyers couldn't afford the hospital bill, but we all banded together and gave what we could till the lawsuit came through. The company settled quickly and promised to redesign on the trucks to make sure it would never happen again. Two weeks later, the Dyers got flush rich and moved away. Two weeks after that, they stopped returning our message. Two weeks after that, the trucks grew even bigger. The sensors on the front had grown spiky, and the look of these huge machines and their twice as long cargo compartments. The sensors on the front had grown spiky, and the look of these huge machines and their twice as long cargo compartments. Enormous, imposing to put my grown vocabulary to use. They bent in the middle. When they turned, that's how long did they become. There were more than two, rumbling through almost all hours of the day and night. Though there were more of them, they stopped for maintenance less often. Our paychecks kept coming in, but the work was drying up, and that made honest men antsy. I won't even describe the antics the dishonest men started getting into up at the bars and the town's gentlemen's establishment. The center of the town became known for drunken violence and sexual harassment. I was glad that I lived out on the edge, far from that rowdy crowd. Bitterness about the trucks had grown, but our resentment exploded after the first death. This time it was a full-grown adult, old man Richter. He'd gone out with a walk without his glasses, but how the hell he didn't hear the damn bellowing things on the road, that's beyond me. We didn't even have time to organize a protest before we found out firsthand how the old man had gone out. The drafts under these barreling monstrosities were little tornadoes, pulling up things like a vacuum. On our way to town hall, one of our group got pulled right under and spun around the back wheels like a ketchup-splattered ragdoll. He fell out behind, and we almost ran to go help him. But the next truck trampled over him and left nothing more than spaghetti and meat sauce. That's when I knew we were in trouble. Real trouble. This was two deaths now, and the town hall was boarded up. The mayor and his slick-suited buddy were on vacation with no return date. There had been rumors of the mayor coming into money, but we didn't know for sure at the time. It was an odd feeling, trying to live in a community under siege. You got your paycheck, and the food's all in the stores, and the water's running, but... Everyone is quiet, and everything is... Dimmer. A little gloomier. You just sit around each day waiting for the news. Did we get through the day without a death? Yeah, usually. Sometimes a week without incident. You start to relax a little. And then somebody dies. We were on phones the whole time, calling up lawyers, calling up police, calling anyone who might listen. We couldn't afford good lawyers, but the ambulance chasers we finally did hire launched a dozen lawsuits which were immediately tied up in court. We were told the process would take years. No help there. 
police came around a few times, saw a splattered body or two, and gave us a few sympathetic comments like, Aw, shit, and wow, have you got a lawyer on this? But there was nobody to arrest, since the trucks were driverless. Couldn't shut down one truck without shutting them all down, and that would cost a ton of money and jobs. All we could do, they said, was wait for the lawyers to get something done. Because of the siege, whatever tension we'd had with our locals was right out. I let the Jimenez kid stay at my house after his parents tried to hit up the grocery store and got crushed between the driverless truck and the tight walls of the back alley they'd been using to avoid the main road. That was the worst part. The number of trucks kept increasing until the main road had trucks on it at all times, in endless rows that never stopped. It was eerie. Seeing them all move like a train like that. All moving the same speed, never braking, never swerving. The town had been split in half. And without warning, excess trucks had begun using the smaller roads to optimize their route. Trucks rumbled by my driveway, day in, day out. By then, I was spending most of my time hiding in the house, curtains shut, playing some old Nintendo games with the Jimenez kid, and trying not to think about the constant subtle shaking underneath my feet. Boredom was our constant enemy, but we kept busy, kept challenging each other, and we got by and kept our heads. What members of the community that could still reach the other branded together? We were hardly beaten, not by a long shot. This was our town, and we would survive. The mayor's offices vacated. The municipal water eventually went out. But the others, on our side of town, showed us all how to set up rain catch barrels, how to clean the water for drinking. The same police who'd come by and been unable to help us soon showed up in full SWAT gear and raided many of the nearby homes. Everyone who was illegal, got deported, and the neighbors that had helped them were forced to cut deals for jail time or face huge minimum sentences as trial. Turns out the mayor had sold the area's water rights to some foreign company before he'd left, so collecting rainwater the way we did was against the law. Much of the rest of our little community tried blocking the road after that, but the trucks just went around, hitting more people use of makeshift explosives followed. They did manage to destroy one truck and block traffic off for nearly a day. SWAT teams showed up and hauled them off soon after. Of the friends that went to prison, one died shortly after entering. The rest, I heard, were put to work building parts for the driverless trucks. Turns out the company had contact with the prison bitter pill to swallow that. I hid the kid from the police, but he and I were one of the only few people on our side of town. The surviving kids had all been snapped up by CPS now that their parents were dead or in jail, so he had nobody to play with, and I spent most of my time making our survival a game. Hide from the trucks, I'd challenge. Find the hidden food, I'd dare he could fit in pipes under the road and across to parts of town I couldn't reach. He did come back with food much of the time, but he never spoke of the things he saw. In fact, 
he stopped speaking altogether after his seventh trip to the inner parts of town. I can remember the exact moment that I realized he and I were the last ones left. A truck swerved to avoid a wild dog. Well, shit, looks like they finally fixed that flaw and barreled straight through a nearby house. By then, the monstrous trucks had become armored in response to our explosives, and the back had become enormously long and massive to carry as much cargo as possible. The house crumpled and tore apart like paper, and that truck kept going like nothing had happened. Only my friend Don had been inside. He'd entertained us with military stories every day, optimistic and hearty to the very end. After finding his body in the wreckage of his house, I knew there was no longer any safe place to be. We were out of food, out of water, and out of places to hide. I was much thinner from hunger by then, and found that I could fit through the pipes under the road if I squeezed up enough and tried not to breathe in anything foul. The kid didn't want to go back to the other parts of town anymore, but he had no choice but to follow me, and I wasn't about to leave my hometown without seeing if anyone was left. Many times I thought I was going to die in that rumbling, vibrating, cramped pipe under the bed, but I managed, somehow. It was clear, once I'd pushed through the muck, why the kid stopped speaking. Center of the town was a Charnel house, splattered with dried blood and torn apart bodies. Worse, most had not been killed by the trucks. They'd killed each other once the driverless walls had gotten too tight to cross. Killed each other for food, for water, and seemingly at the end, for entertainment. Don had always said that unchecked boredom was the true bringer of nightmare and extreme circumstances. I'd always wondered what he meant by that, but now I knew. Without a job, boredom had become agony. We'd been lucky being on the outskirts of town. We'd kept ourselves entertained and gone into the forest to hunt for food often. These men, women, and children had nowhere to go and they'd been surrounded by violence, hunger, and thirst. More than any other emotion, boredom had brought hell on earth. I thought to cover the kid's eyes, but I knew he'd already seen this seven times before. The main road was strikingly clean, swept constantly by the truck drafts. I even saw a motorist driving between the trucks, oblivious to the death and gore hidden behind just the corners of each building. To him, this was just another small village he was passing through. I screamed for help, but he couldn't hear us over the constant roar of the trucks. Finally, crawling through more pipes, we reached the other side of town. I emerged from the filth and clambered up to a nicely paved road. Staring around, I saw lots of nice new buildings. Fresh paint, cheery signs, large open roads, bigger, newer houses. There was even a large mall down at the end of the street. The kid and I walked around in shock, wondering when the hell the old town had been bulldozed and built over. How long had we been surviving in the dirt, cut off from society? 
Sharply dressed men and women escorted well-behaved children around the pleasant neighborhood. Hey, how are you? Long time no see. I turned and saw Bill Dyers walking over from a nearby playground. His kid continued playing, his prosthetic leg hardly noticeable. Isn't it great what they've done with the town? Bill asked, grinning widely. He lowered his head to show me the top. Notice anything different? I'll tell you. I got hair implants. No more baldness. He didn't seem to notice that the Jimenez kid and I were covered in dirt, filth, blood, and other unspeakable signs of the nightmare we'd endured. But a nearby cop certainly noticed. Can't be here dressed like that, he barked. If you're homeless, I'll have to take you in. (laughs) Oh, no, Bill said to the officer, still cheery. They're friends of mine. They can stay with me. Is that true? The officer asked me, his tone stern. I wasn't about to go to prison. I'd kill myself before I helped build those godless trucks. Yes. Uh, Yes, sir. We'll clean up right away. The officer regarded us both for a minute, then leaned down to look the kid in the eye. Yo hablo inglés? I gulped. One word of Spanish, and he was gone. But the kid just stared at him. He doesn't speak, I told him. Years? Yeah, his uh, mom died during childbirth. Sorry to hear that. The officer coughed uncomfortably. Uh, well, clean up and get off the street. Don't let me see you like this again. If I see you sleeping out here, it's off to lock up with both of you. Yes, sir. I relaxed as he walked away. Bill laid his arm around my shoulders. Don't think I've forgotten about you all, banding together for our hospital bill like that. You can stay with me until you get on your feet. We're all friends here, right? Right, I answered, following him toward his nice, clean house. He had no idea. None of these people had any idea. For survival's sake, I kept my burning fury hidden. There was nobody to blame. No conspiracy, no plan behind what had happened. The more I researched into the workings behind these events that had destroyed my town and killed or imprisoned my entire community, the more I realized that nobody was even aware it had happened. They'd hear about the first dog that had died, and that had caused weeks of national outrage. They'd heard about the Dyer's kid and his crushed legs, and that had gotten brief national attention and lots of sympathy. They'd heard a clamor about a water rights trial. They hadn't really understood They heard a clamor about some hicks blowing up a driverless truck. They hadn't cared. It had become a running joke on late night television. But nobody knew the horrors, the true web of horrors that we experienced. The company didn't even fully realize. All they'd seen was a volatile workforce fighting over paychecks. The legal department had handled the lawsuits until the plaintiffs had all died or gone to prison. 
The payroll department had stopped checks one by one for those who had died or gone to prison. The maintenance department had replaced the workers as they left. Eventually, the whole thing had just gone away. The higher-ups had seen nothing past the initial labor compromise, and most of them had been replaced over time anyway. There was nobody left at the company who even knew the name of our town. That's the part that fills me with more bitterness than rage. There's no one to blame. I can't get revenge. Nobody did anything to us. No one person meant us harm. No one person wanted anything more than comfort and profit. When you endure something like that, you want to know who did it. You want to blame someone. I can't find anyone to blame. When the Jimenez kid, when Ricky finally starts speaking again, when he asks me who was responsible for the hell we went through, I can honestly tell him, nobody. That's the scariest part. The system is bigger than any of us. The system barrels on. Horrific tragedies can just happen without anyone meaning them to. Because there's nobody at the wheel. everyone. I hope you enjoyed both of these stories tonight. The first one was a little supernatural. The second one, which I'm going to ask you about here in a second, was like existential. You know, the whole idea of technology taking over. And that's kind of what I want to ask as far as what I want you to say in the comments, which what I want you to answer. Do you fear one day that we are going to become so reliant on technology that we are just going to forget about everything. Like, is it going to change things so much that it's going to be detrimental to the very fabric of the world? Personally, I don't think so. I don't think so. Because in my brain, even things that are very highly technologically advanced are subject to error, and those errors have to be fixed. And I feel like people, humans, are like the ones who normally fix those errors? I could be wrong. For all I know, they've already developed some kind of machine that can fix other machines when that machine messes up. I don't know. It's definitely a, a scary thought, I suppose, but, I mean, I work. Like, I wouldn't have my job without technology. <laughs> so, maybe it's not a bad thing. Who knows? Um, so let me know what you thought about both of those stories. Let me know your whole thoughts on the, like, technological world taking over and everything like that. I'd be interested to hear what you think. And, um, leave me a comment down below. Let me know what you thought about both of these. Hope you have a wonderful night, afternoon, or morning, wherever you are. Take care of yourselves and those around you. And as always, sleep tight.